0: Well, Malachi 2 now, we're coming, I, I think, really to the end of God's real relationship with the, the exiles who returned from Babylon because they, they returned, but very few of them did. The majority chose, of course, to stay in Babylon. And those who did return, according to Haggai, returned really motivated by a desire for their own personal benefit. They thought that if they came back... They would get their own land and their own little houses they could build on that land, and they look forward to good harvests. And God says, Well, because of that, I have sent a famine upon you. And you didn't really come back to build my house, you came back to just build up your own kingdom rather than my kingdom. If you remember the time of Ezra, uh, when they first started to go back, Ezra sort of says, Oh, hang, we don't have any Levites, there's no priests. Um, No, we can't go back yet and he's got to sort of run around and and try and persuade a few Levites to come back from Babylon so the Levites came back but they weren't exactly uh, switched on they had to be sort of uh, really talked into it by uh, by Ezra and when they got back there according to Ezra and Nehemiah they went off and uh, just uh, farmed their own land and didn't really get on with teaching the people And so here in Malachi 2, we have a particularly uh, quite uh, caustic, really, criticism of the priests who had returned uh, from Babylon. And God really tried to get the people who returned to live up to the potential that he had enabled. They could have built the temple, as he specified in the last chapters of Ezekiel. They could have really had a restored kingdom of God on earth. But they didn't want it because they were caught up by their own immediate pettiness, their immediate needs, what they wanted. And they wouldn't see that bigger picture of his glory. And so he says in verse two, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already. Now, I think there you see a little bit how God operates. He makes a statement. He says, I have already cursed you. I've already done this, but I will send this curse upon you. There's a kind of a gap in between his statement of what he's going to do, and what in that sense he has already done, uh, and his execution of it. Now, bearing in mind that if God says something, it is as good as done, that gap is really the gap of grace, and there is an urgency during that gap to repent, and you get it really clearly with Nineveh. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. There were no conditions, but there was the 40 days gap. It, he didn't say if you repent in those 40 days, all will be well. Just said in 40 days, you will be destroyed. So there was a gap, and it was due, in that gap that they had the possibility of repenting and of changing God's expressed purpose. And this is really the position that we're in. We have been, in that sense, condemned, because we have sinned, and that's that. But, in this gap between the statement of that that curse, if you like, and its actual physical fulfillment, there is this possibility to change God, and this openness that he has to human repentance. Now, that is a wonderful thing, because we are living in the gap period. Not only in our own lives, but in society, the world, etc. For Israel, we're living in that gap period. And this is what gives our human existence a great intensity. There's an extreme importance attached to life and living and how we are. Now, he he says, verse uh, 4, that in that day when they are condemned, then you shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi. He's saying, I wanted to continue my covenant with you, but you don't want to. And in that day you shall know. This is a theme, really, in all the descriptions of the rejected, that too late in that day, then they will know. And Jesus had this in mind, I think, when he said, you won't see me again, he said to the Jews, who he said, were are going to be condemned. You won't see me again until you shall say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, that too late you will bless me. And it's the same all for the prophets, especially Ezekiel, that in that day you shall know my name. You shall know me. But Too late. And I think this is the basis of the weeping and gnashing of teeth. That it's not so that, well, if it doesn't work out, you come to a judgment, and Jesus says, well, no, you're not going to be there, that you just shrug your shoulders and say, yeah, well, I never really wanted to be anyway, never really quite got you, never really quite got what on earth you were on, on about, and then you just sort of walk away and you know, live your life and then die, and that's it. No. Nobody will be indifferent in that day. Everybody, beating in their deepest consciousness and their strongest desire, will be that desire I want to be in God's kingdom. And so it really is today, should be today, that if that ultimately is our end point, to come before the day of judgment, and I have that great beating inside us that that is all I want, to be in his kingdom, that is how we should be now. There should not be some huge disconnect between how we are now and how we will be in that day. Because the essence, of course, of judgment is is today. Now, from verse 10, he starts specifically criticizing the priests for what they had done with with their wives. It seems that what they had done was to divorce their Hebrew wives, the Jewish wives... And mighty Gentiles, who, as he says in verse 11, uh, were the daughter of a strange God. Now, let's look more carefully about uh, how God expresses this criticism. Or how Malachi puts it to them. Verse 10, have we not all one father? One God created us. Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah verse 11 Has profaned the holiness of Yahweh Which he loved and has married the daughter Of a strange God And the Lord will cut off the man that, that does this Verse 14 Because the Lord Has been witness between you and the wife of your youth Against whom you have dealt Treacherously Yet is she your companion and the wife of your covenant Now that's the same As what he says in verse 14 You're dealing treacherously Each one against his brother you're profaning the covenant. All this talk about treachery against your brother, against your wife, breaking covenant. What? What is he getting at? Well, as I see it, our covenant relationship with God is not simply a contract between God and me, or God and you, as individuals. Our covenant with God is based upon the covenant, the one and only ultimate covenant that God made, and that is with Abraham. That... Through Abraham's seed, which is Jesus and all those that are in Christ, by baptism or by being in Christ and abiding in Him, we therefore are counted as if we are Jesus, and therefore we have access to the blessings of the covenant the blessing of forgiveness, of reconciliation with God, and of eternal inheritance of God's kingdom on earth. So then, that is the covenant that has been made and our salvation depends upon that covenant because salvation is mediated through that covenant through the terms of that covenant in Christ so then when we break bread we, we take the the symbol of that covenant the the cup of the new testament or the new covenant that was confirmed in the blood of Jesus It's not that it was a new covenant that was made in that blood. The covenant was that with Abraham and it was confirmed by God in Christ. And so then we are celebrating when we take that cup, we are celebrating the covenant, which is the covenant simply of salvation that God gave to Abraham in his seed in Christ. So then. Our covenant with God is based upon a covenant between God, or the covenant between God and a group of people. That is, the believers, the the people of God, the body of Christ, etc. So then, he's saying, if you deal treacherously with your brother, that is, with somebody else who's within the covenant you are profaning the covenant of our fathers, verse 10. And then he gets more specific, talking in verse 14 about if you are treacherous against the wife of your youth, who is also a a believer, then you also are breaking the the covenant. Now, I think that uh, what he's really saying there is that if we break our covenant with our brethren those others who are in the body, in the community, in the seed of Abraham, in Christ, then we are breaking our covenant with God. That's how he addresses this issue of uh, being treacherous against your brother or against your wife, by saying that by doing that, you are surely breaking your covenant with God, because the covenant between you and God is not just between you as an individual and God, it is between God and the community. Of believers, salvation is in a body it 's not that you and I personally shall be saved by some special kind agreement that God made. The one person who died and shall live forever is the seed of Abraham as Jesus, but we can become part of him we can become part of the the people of God, and thereby We have this hope of salvation and of resurrection as he also rose. And so Paul puts this another way when he talks about the body of Christ and he does that in the context of talking about division. And he basically says that if you don't want anything to do with your brethren who are part of the body of Christ, that is your attitude to Christ. You are really saying, I don't want to be part of Christ. And, of course, Jesus himself taught this when he said in the parable that what you did to the least of these, my brethren, you did unto me. Your attitude to the brethren who are in Christ, to the body of Christ, the body of believers, the people of God, the seed of Abraham, however you want to term it. That is your attitude to God and to Jesus personally. And so Malachi's reasoning here, if you... Uh, Break your covenant with each other, when you're all within the the covenant people. You cheat on your wife who's a believer, you divorce her, you go off with some Gentile woman, you uh, act treacherously, verse 10, every man against his brother, then you profane the covenant. Now, this is a very uh, profound issue, because what it means is that if we're saying that I will not have anything to do with the people of god we are really saying i'm out with god and so often people who in many ways are very pious apparently very religious read the bible a lot hold themselves in some parts of their lives to very high standards uh, quite commendably so very often they are the very ones who will not Have anything to do with the rest of the people of God And I can only plead with all of us To be aware of this And not to go along with any separation at all From those for whom Christ died For those who are the covenant people Because really our salvation depends upon this We are saved in a body In a community And if we break out of that community If we are if we act inappropriately against others who are within the covenant body, well, that is what we are doing to God and and Jesus. Uh, This is very profound, and it's really written uh, almost in every other page, I think, that that Paul wrote, if not more often. Um, He's really urging us, and Malachi here is urging them in the same spirit, to be so careful about your attitude to others in the community of believers because by doing this by separating from them etc you are potentially breaking your relationship with God and as I say the paradox is that those who often do this walk out and say no I, I can't st- stomach this I can't be here if such and such is going on etc <laughs> they have the impression that they are somehow more spiritual, that they are holding everyone to a high spiritual standard. But actually what they're doing is is an abomination. And what they're doing is actually asking for condemnation, because they are separating themselves from God and his son. Now, of course, that's not how they see it. But that is how God reveals in the Bible that he sees it. I'm not saying they shall not be in God's kingdom, because I like to believe that God's grace is enough even for them. But we have got to be careful ourselves. All we can say is that whether it costs me status, loss of family, loss of whatever, if that's the price that is asked from me by the Father and his Son, then who would not pay that price? Especially as we are all sinners uh, desperate for, for God's grace. And have been shown that grace. So he sort of develops the idea a bit in verse 11. Where he complains that uh, not only the priests. But Judah has done this. Like people, like priests. Judah has married the daughter of a strange God. But in verse 10 he has said that for us we have one father. That is God. We are the children of God. But you have married the daughter of another God. So I think what he's saying is that we're all the children of our gods. We are the children of God, and people who worship idols, for example, are the children of of those idols. And so if God is really God for us, then there is no place for any kind of idolatry at all. And of course, as we so well know, and as we are so often reminded by our brethren, idols are not, in our context, bits of wood and stone. They are all the nonsense that we are surrounded with in in this world. Now, these things are are important. As I I say, he says in verse 15, Take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Absolutely right. He realizes that those who had dealt treacherously against their wives, who are cleared off and Divorce them, take another Gentile women, etc. It all started in the mind. It all started in the spirit. And so he says, take heed to your spirit. So that you don't deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. And of course the Lord Jesus puts that in other terms when he talks about uh, not looking lustfully. And to look lustfully is uh, as if you have actually committed uh, sexual sin. Verse 16, again, take heed to your spirit, he repeats this, that you deal not treacherously. But he says, verse 16, God hates this, uh, what you're doing, and people, you people are covering violence with your garment. Violence. Yes, I think that is an example of where God looks at, if you like, psychological sin so seriously. That as far as God was concerned, what they were doing was violent. And in reality, I don't suppose they had used violence. They had simply had an affair. Uh, Simple as. And uh, drifted apart from their wife and got involved with some Gentile woman uh, who was the daughter of a strange God, as verse 11 says. And God caused that violence. You're covering up your violence with a garment. They were dressing it up in acceptable terms. Now this of course is how finally God will judge and it is a comfort in one sense when we you know we've all suffered from people who have done nothing less than psychological violence to us and it's a comfort to know that God actually sees that God sees and knows all things, and that he sees the implication of of words, of attitudes to us, uh, etc. But by the same token, it is, of course, a huge challenge that God, of course, understands our own poor attitudes and uh, poor thinking in the same way. He gives due weight to it. And this, of course, is the, 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 the supreme importance of being spiritually minded, because it is How we think and how we feel, that is the essence of the Christian life. And especially justifying behavior, like they covered this violence with a garment, verse 17, and they said, everyone that does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of judgment? Now, again, they weren't actually saying, ah, yeah, you know, God's not going to judge, he's not serious about judgment. It was an attitude. And God read it as if they were saying, where is the God of judgment? And likewise, I don't suppose they ever actually said, everyone that does evil is good, in God's opinion. And he loves evildoers. I'm sure they never said that. But their process of self-justification for what they were doing, God read like that. That effectively that's what you're saying. And when you act as if judgment is not going to come, you are saying, where is the God of judgment? Well, that's not what they said in so many words, but that is how God read them. And as I say, this is a a comfort if we struggle, as I believe we all do, uh, over attitudes of others to us and misbehavior uh, of others to us, that God is sensitive to that. And yet it is this huge warning, of course, that God will hold us to those same standards. And, of course, what was wrong particularly with the the Levites was that, you know, verse verse 7, the whole intention was that they should have been the source of knowledge, and people should have come and sought God's law at their mouth, because they were the messenger, the malak, the angel, of the Lord of hosts. But they didn't do that, and so therefore, verse 8, you cause many to stumble. And this is uh, so obviously relevant to a community that were largely illiterate. If people are illiterate and can't read, then from where do they get God's word? It is from the mouth of His messengers, from the priests. And so, it's the same really with the world in which we live. They are literate, but the fact is, for whatever reason, they are ignorant of God's word. Um, they have most people have never seriously read the Bible. The vast majority of people on this planet. You know have never seriously read the Bible. They may have read some of them bits and pieces of it, but very few people have seriously read the Bible and we are to them this new priesthood we are you know first peter two five we are uh, the new priesthood, and for whom then are we working? If we are a priesthood, well, who are the people? for whom we are, you know, working, teaching, uh, mediating uh, God and his word too. Well, it's the world, is it not? Um, And if we don't do that, then we are really responsible, hugely responsible. And worse, verse 8, you can cause people to stumble at, at God's law. And so all really that is written here in Criticism of the Priesthood, considering that we are, all of us now, the new priesthood. This all has this relevance to us. How do they get in this way of thinking? Because they returned from Babylon, they made the journey in the first place, with, let's say, doubtful motivation, and when they got there to to the land of Judah, they were just really interested in having their own little farmstead, Growing their crops, hoping for a good harvest, and, uh, yeah, sure, calling themselves the people of God. But actually rising up to the whole wonderful picture of possibility that was in front of them. Just, they didn't want to see that. And because they were not as aware as they should have been of the covenant relationship they had with God, therefore they profaned that covenant by their attitude to each other. So this comes out to this, that we're now going to to take the symbol of that covenant. And let's remember that we are in covenant relationship with God. We are saved by that covenant. And that covenant is not between God and you, personally, with no account for anybody else. There's only one covenant, and that is with the people of God, the seed of Abraham, which is all those that are in Christ in our day. And whenever you meet someone who's in Christ, wow, you know, here's your great opportunity uh, to act to them as you wish Jesus to act to you. And to be so careful that we do not in any sense, as he puts it, deal treacherously against the people of God. But we have no barriers against anyone in the people of God, because if we do that, well, this is a barrier we are putting up against God and against his son. You know, in Paul's terms, we are to examine ourselves to make sure that we are discerning the body of Christ. And he says that, of course, particularly in the context of the breaking of bread. And I, I can only say that the breaking of bread should be open, at very least, to all who are in the body of Christ. In fact, it must be, because otherwise you are going to end up doing exactly what Paul says will put you outside of the body by putting up a barrier between you and people in the body of Christ, you are putting up a barrier between you and the Lord Jesus himself personally. Because salvation is in a body, is in a community. And it's this which has the potential to bind us together, looking at it more positively, to bind us together like nothing else. That immediate desire to be open and and positive to each other, Knowing that our attitude to each other and our love for each other and our devotion to each other is our love for God and our attitude to him.